Well, here we are, season three. The Ira Stephen Bear era has officially began, and we start to see some things which were probably pretty awesome. Now, let me go ahead and say this very quickly. I think the inclusion of the Defiant was a very good move for DS9. However, I also find myself disagreeing with a lot of people who say that the inclusion of the Defiant was a very good thing for Deep Space Nine. Because a lot of the reasons I heard, and this happened when DS9 was coming out as well, um, in addition to something that I still hear from people to this day, is the idea that, well, now it's a proper Star Trek show. Well, now it's a real Star Trek show. It wasn't actually Star Trek before now, because they didn't actually have a ship or a captain and going around and doing stuff. But now it is. I do not agree with that mindset at all. Rather, what I see here is the perfect marriage of both ideas. The ship adds mobility and the and the relative ease to have them extend the camera, so to speak, within the range of Deep Space Nine, but Deep Space Nine maintaining its, its solid background, it its home base, if you will, allows them to retain investment in the events going around the area and the geopolitical situation involved therewith. So... I actually think this is a very good move. Even the usage of the Defiant itself was a good move, because it's a warship. They like to say that this is the first Star, uh, Star Trek, excuse me, Starfleet warship. I don't think I agree with that statement. But I will agree that this is probably the first Starfleet warship we've had in a really long time. Remember, the winds of change golden era of awesome has been going on for like a decade. And before that, they only had three relatively minor wars and 70 years of otherwise mostly peace. I've talked about this extensively over my TNG videos. So, I can understand the idea that Starfleet has moved further and further away from the idea of having, you know, dedicated warships. But one of the things I like most about the Defiant, and this is going to sound weird, is it reminds me of why I have faith in the Federation's ability to function as an organization. Because when the Federation actually says, okay, fine, fine, we want to do this, then they frickin' do it. And they do it well. The Defiant is a beautiful ship and is a wonderfully designed warship. They even do a good job of showcasing this in the episode. The cloak doesn't work all that well, but when the ship finally actually fights, and I made a note of it here, it takes out one of the Jem'Hadar ships in seconds through its shields. Now, they mention that this is also a very flawed ship because of its prototype nature, and that also makes plenty of sense to me because they haven't been doing this kind of thing in a while, and there's been issues, and then the Borg weren't as much of a threat, so maybe work away from it, but... In the long run, I think that this is a kind of a ship that is pretty much perfect for this circumstance. It shows the, what Starfleet is willing to do when they bare their teeth. It allows the crew of Deep Space Nine to be able to jaunt out in something other than a goddamn minibus. I'm sorry, I never really liked the runabouts. Um... It allows them to have some significant firepower when it comes to dealing with the far more malicious situation they're dealing with. It's not completely overpowered, even though it, they could have easily made it that and just kind of ignored continuity or setting, building, or anything like that. And finally, this is pretty much officially the turning point over when making more warships is going to be more of a focus. There are a lot of ships that will be introduced in the coming years after this across uh, both shows, uh, DS9 and Voyager, as well as the movies, which are all ships that basically are byproducts of the Defiant Project. And most of those are combat-oriented ships, so... Anywho. 
I also uh <laughs> I love the fact that they can only cloak in the Gamma Quadrant. In universe, they're like, this is part of our agreement with the Romulan Empire, because they have the whole Treaty of Algernon, right? Sure. Um Many people have looked at that treaty and said, huh? And smarter people than me have dissected that treaty and how many, many issues it has. The best possible way I could ever defend the Treaty of Algernon is that it was done by the Federation, who are not the smartest of people when it comes to being willing with dealing with other powers and their over-reliance on treaties. We've talked about this before regarding the Cardassians, so that's the only reason I say it makes sense, because it is actually a bad treaty. Which, of course, brings me to um, something amusing. So they have Tarul, right? Who's who's secretly a Cardassian woman, who's secretly a Maquis. <laughs> um, and I don't have much to say about her. I'm only mentioning her here briefly now, because she's very much a one-note character. In fact, if I could be so bold, I am completely agree with the idea that they eject her from the show. Originally, she was supposed to be a recurring guest character. And kind of like Garak, for example. And then they had no idea what to do with her story-wise. So after the search part two, she will vanish and never come back or be mentioned ever again. Really. But then again, the whole restriction on cloaking will never be mentioned again, too. I love DS9, but they do drop the ball hard sometimes. Because every now and again, they just retcon things, and there's no explanation. There's no attempt to smooth things over. They're just like, ah, that was a mistake, and they toss it out. I mentioned that just last week with regards to uh, several things with the Jem'Hadar on the Vorta, for example. Anywho, so, <laughs> speaking of which, uh, getting back to my point. So, Tarul is vanished, and the no-cloaking thing is vanished. I feel very badly for the model designers and lighting pro uh, setup that they had to do, because they just keep cloaking the Define, and apparently it was a colossal pain to set up, and ugh, I feel them on that. But what I find funniest is the way they convinced... Rick Berman, <laughs> knew I'd be bringing him up again soon, in order to allow them to have a cloaking device on a Federation ship, is by saying they'd only use it in the Gamma Quadrant. I hope you appreciate the irony of that, because there's two amusing points here. I'm just going to go ahead and highlight just to make it very clear. The only way that they could convince Rick Berman, who at this point in time was very heavily into his we must follow the vision of Roddenberry phase, a.k.a. the phase when he just started ruining everything he touches, um, he's like, no, no, we don't sneak around, we don't do that, the Federation doesn't use cloaks, which is dumb and stupid, in my opinion. I gotta be honest, I've never heard a legitimately good uh, argument for Roddenberry's perspective on that. Please, feel free to give me one if you have one. I, I would legitimately love to hear it. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it when we get to the Pegasus over on TNG. I don't know. Anyways, so Rick Berman's very hardline on that, but they're like, no, 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 it's okay, we'll only use it in the Gamma Quadrant. Um, very well, I accept. And then they just use it all the time all over the place, because Rick Berman stopped paying attention to Deep Space Nine. I've mentioned this before, and as I've stated before, I don't have what you would call concrete, definitive, in-writing, in-stone video evidence of the fact that the executives and the, t uh, the upper tiers of management at Paramount CBS and Star Trek in general just kind of started ignoring DS9. But little things like this are bits of evidence for why I have continued to say that for many, many years. Because all of them were focusing their energy and effort on the movies, which at this point in time they were already filming. They were already working on Generations right now. Um, and, of course, Voyager, which they were also already working on and getting ready to, to push out. 
And Deep Space Nine just kind of got away with doing things that they weren't actually supposed to do. It's weird how that happens. It's almost like no one was paying attention to them. Anyways. Now, I do love... I already mentioned the prototype thing, and the fact that this was a ship designed to fight the Borg. One of the things I find funny is that if you look at the design of the ship, it's a set of guns with some engines attached, and way, way too much power being pumped into those. <laughs> What I find funniest about this personally is that this feels like an overall problem of throughput. If those of you don't understand what I mean, generating X amount of energy, power, healing, damage, whatever you want to call it in, in, from a mathematical perspective, is usually relatively easy. Getting that energy, power, damage, healing, etc. to the target in X amount of time, that's the hard part. That's throughput. In other words, to use another analogy, uh, we have relative, it's relatively easy to make uh, generators, real life generators, that generate an absolutely enormous amount of electricity. But getting that electricity safely and properly and efficiently to its destination, that's a much more difficult issue and has been causing issues in infrastructure, at least here in the States. I don't actually know how this is in other countries, although I'm told Portugal is doing very well about that one right now, so who knows. Um, no controversy, that's just something I heard about because I, I like to follow the energy trade a little bit because it's interesting to me. Point being, that's basically what we've got here. They have a ship whose entire purpose is designed to get as much of that overwhelming amount of power that Starfleet ships you know, have just into the guns. No holodecks, no fancy medical quarters, no extensive you know, luxury suites, no tons of... I mean, if you think about it, think. I know this sounds weird, but think about it as if this was actually something that was happening, a believability thing, if you will. Think about the amazing amount of power that's being generated by a galaxy-class cruiser at any given point in time. It's, it's got to be enormous, <laughs> right? I mean, if you don't quite understand, try to plug in a microwave, two microwaves at once in your house and then run them both at the same time. There's a chance that'll work. I know in my house it won't. We actually have a whole rule thing about that, because we do have two microwaves, and it's like, okay, everything, everything has to be off, and we have to make sure the other microwave isn't running, and then we go ahead and run this microwave, because it just doesn't work. Now, picture how many replicators are working at the same time. How many sonic showers? How many holodecks? How many turbolifts? How much uh, plasma is being constantly generated? Et cetera, et cetera. Never mind the big stuff, like the warp engines. That's a huge amount of power. Now imagine putting all that power into just one thing. The guns. And you have the Defiant. So what I'm trying to say in my own long, rambling manner is that the Defiant and its prototypal nature is very believable for me. For, for all of the weird aspects that Star Trek has and the many weird things we just have to accept in Star Trek, it's just like, yeah, okay, whatever. This is probably one of the most believable ship designs I've seen in a while, and I do like it. It's probably one of the reasons why the Defiant is so popular. I don't know. Do you guys like the Defiant? Honest question, because I hear a lot of people like the Defiant, and I'm curious, you know, if, if you have a why. So Eddington is introduced to the show. Odo reacts to him in basically the exact same way he reacted to Prim back in season two, I think? Or was that season one? God, I don't even remember. You remember Prim, right? He was there for like two episodes, maybe three. I can't, I don't fully remember. Um... He's like, oh, I, I quit, I'm out, I quit, I'm out, I quit. What's funny is the very fact that Oda's like, I quit, I'm out, is more or less exactly the reason why Oda's being replaced here. Later on, excuse me for talking about Oda here, but later on, Cisco has a comment saying, Starfleet likes team players. Now that makes sense to me, and I understand that, and I would even go so far as to say that I endorse that. Because Oda is behaving as if he's a Maquis. 
Now, obviously, I don't mean really the way the Maquis have been portrayed on this show, but how many of you remember uh, the final episode of Season 1 of Voyager? I don't remember the name. Please forgive me. I think it's Learning Curve. I want to say it's Learning Curve. And there's this bit where Tuvok is trying to teach the guys. Now, I'm not with Tuvok on that, for reasons I discussed in that rumination. But there's a little bit where Chakotay is there, and he says, you want to do things the Maquis way? Okay, and then he slugs him. It's just right on the jaw and says, all right, you're going to go there and you're going to do this. And if you don't, we're going to have a repeat of this problem. Because the Maquis way is just doing things and getting them done. And that's all that's important is the ends. There's no real efficiency. There's no real system of command. There's no real order. There's no real team. And that's kind of what Odo likes to do. Now, I'm not necessarily disparaging him for that, because, Lord knows, I tend to be like that myself. I have had difficulty working in teams in the past. I had to work through those issues as I was going through my 20s to try and be a better team player in order to basically do better at jobs and work and to you know, advance and get career and all that fun stuff. Because there's a logical understanding why something like a station, which is basically a city, would want people operating it who are team players. So I, I know this sounds absolutely bizarre, but I'm on Starfleet's side on this one. This is probably one of the very few times I'll ever say that. But Odo is just being a little bit too cantankerous, a little bit too uh, defensive. That's understandable. And far too aggressive about his desire to do things his way and in no other ways. Doesn't mean I don't like Odo, it's just pointing it out. Now... Uh, where's my notes? Um, okay, so next thing I want to talk about is they, they're running through these simulations of how what they're going to do if the Dominion attack. For reference, it's been two months since the events of the last episode in canon, in lore. And the Dominion haven't attacked in two months. I know this sounds very stupid, but I almost wonder why they're even running these. If the Dominion really wanted to just sweep in and crush you, they would. The Dominion has fleets in the thousands of ships. We know this. So right now what the Dominion is doing is playing at other things. Now we'll find out what those other things are in the future. But my point is, they're operating under the assumption that like a squadron's going to come out of that wormhole. And they can't deal with a squadron. <laughs> I also find it amusing that in two months, Starfleet's only support that they offer to this station in what is effectively now a front line against a critical and offensive aggressor is one ship, which is a prototype. And I always got the impression that the only reason they got that was because of Cisco, who was one of the project leads involved in the Defiant Project. So, right? Anywho. <clears throat> so they call this thing an escort class, which led to an entire class of ships being called escorts over in Star Trek Online. Uh, there's Tarul, one-note character, Eddington. I like Eddington. I, I don't like him personally. In fact, he's probably the kind of character I would definitely not get along with. But he is very relatable and understandable. And I find his character arc to be rather engaging. And that's all I'm going to say right now. I do like how he says, well, I am here to make friends. You know, and tries to be nice to people. Nice touch. Something I think we can say definitively, knowing the future, is that Eddington was a fairly affable person. A very people person. Anywho. <clears throat> we also uh, have Cisco's love of Bajor. This is the first time that really comes in. I'm pretty sure that Ira Stephen Bear, being the mainliner at this point in time, is one of the biggest reasons why now is when that's being a thing. Now, it's a natural movement, and I like it. 
but it does feel like he he had that idea and pushed it onto it and that led to some things down the line that's all i'm going to say about that right now that being said the scene with him and jake is is glorious it really is now when did that happen what when did i start thinking of this as home and jake's rejoinder is well, i think it was at this exact point in time just a few days ago when you pulled all your stuff out of storage back on a back on earth so that because this stuff is where you put your home I myself have admitted, on this very show, regarding this very topic about Deep Space Nine, I've admitted that I have a unique concept of home. But I also have always had a concept of, uh, let's call it someplace that's more mine. Not quite home, because my home is wherever I am. But what I mean is someplace where I feel safe, if that makes any sense. Someplace where I feel stable, that's a better word. Someplace where I feel like, okay, I'm here, and I'm probably going to be here for a while, and I am comfortable here. There are things that are usually of, of my own that are in boxes. And once I move, they stay in boxes. Because the, in the back of my mind, there's always that thought, well, I'm going to move again in another year or whatever, so I need, just need to leave everything in boxes. This isn't home. This isn't, again, wrong term. This isn't the safe place, right? This isn't the comfortable place. This isn't the stable place. So I just leave stuff packed. And then, sure enough, when I move again, I move. So I, I, I kind of have a personal connection to that idea that you've got your stuff that's very important and valuable. Not just crap, but things that actually mean something to you. Think, maybe they're uh, heirlooms, or maybe they're gifts from fa friends or family. Maybe they're pictures, or maybe they're just decorations that you happen to really like, or are very delicate, or whatever. Something that matters to you, that you put out on display because this is your comfortable domicile. I need a term here that isn't home. <laughs> you know what I mean? I get that. I like that. And I like how they use it here. They have this whole discussion between Dax and Cisco, And Cisco's like, someday I'm going to be the Admiral. Because most people who join the officer career track want to keep going up the officer career track. Most people, not all. I like it. The scene's a little bit too on the nose. But it does tell us something about Cisco that has already been true and will continue to be true in the future. Cisco is the frontline commander, not the backline officer. Now, in a proper military situation, both are just as necessary as the other. But I have to admit, someone like Cisco being the frontline commander is probably the best type of person to literally be on the front lines on Deep Space Nine when it comes to the whole Dominion situation. I have to be honest, I can't imagine Picard or even Kirk would really have been the right kind of person for this kind of scenario. Anywho, I could go into a discussion about the differences between the captains right now, but, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, Kirk was the legend. He was the hero, charging out and doing into the frontier, right? We'll go into it really quick. Picard, he, Picard is definitely the backline officer. He cares about his people. He has a very friendly and familial approach to things, a fatherly approach. But he is still the person who stays up on the bridge, who stays on the ship at a distance because he wants to make sure he has the, the thousand-yard perspective at all given points in time. He wants to constantly be looking down and seeing all the variables, right? That's the whole point of a backline officer, after all. He needs someone to be on the front line in order to give him some of that information so he can make the right calls, which is another reason why the two work together. I've already told you what Cisco is. Janeway is someone the writers couldn't decide who she is, but I've always thought that Janeway is a science officer. 
And I don't mean that with any kind of insult. In fact, I think the Janeway that developed later on in the episode Night and Onward is actually really awesome, mostly on the strength of Kate Mulgrew's uh, performance. And then, of course, we have Archer, who, once they got there, was actually pretty cool. Season 3, Season 4 Archer. Because what I see in Archer is someone who isn't an officer at all and was forced to be one. And that's the kind of officer he is. Someone who the, the burdens of command and responsibility were shoved onto him and he didn't want them, but he did take them. And he did actually deal with them for both good and bad. I mention that because the three predominant captains, Kirk, Picard, and Sisko, all were officer track. They wanted to be in command. Janeway, I never got the impression that she was that. I've never seen anything in her story that felt like she was deliberately trying to be on the command track, unless it was the command track towards admiralty, and given that she eventually becomes an admiral, maybe that's true, I don't know. But Archer, no. Archer was only a captain because it meant he could be on his ship with his engine, getting out there seeing things. That was his thing. That was his shtick. Anyways, moving on back to the episode. Sorry for the detour. Let's talk about the cloak. One of the things I really like is that, again, this goes back to that believability thing, the cloak is extremely flawed. The first time they encounter the Jem'Hadar, the Jem'Hadar come within the spatial term, the spatial equivalent of inches of them. And then walk away. Bonus points. Considering what we know, given the future, do you think they actually detected them in that moment? Because I kind of do. And they were probably just waiting for orders, and the orders came in, they're like, all right, let them go. Anywho. But I mention that because I like the cloak being weak. I like the cloak not being perfect. If the cloak was perfect, then it would be the Mary Sue ship from Nemesis, right? But it's also a long-established fact of the cloak, going all the way back to Balance of Terror, when the cloak was very first introduced. At least I think that was the first time we ever saw the cloak. I'm not sure about the timeline. But that's the first time I ever saw the cloak. Even back then, the cloak was not perfect. There were ways to track it. There were ways to see through it under certain circumstances. And that's been a recurring riff forever. Even in Star Trek Three, the, the uh, search for Spock, there's a bit where he can literally see, physically see the visual distortion and is ready for the Burrell to uncloak and... And the, again, this has been a consistent thing throughout all of Star Trek. So it makes total sense that they, we finally have a cloak and we've spent all this time establishing ways to get through it. Now that's all working against us. Something about that amuses me and again adds believability. Which leads me to my final point. I know this is going to sound super strange, but why does the Defiant have a cloak? I, I know that sounds like such a weird thing to comment on, but the Defiant is not a good ship type to have a cloak. The Defiant is a gun with engines. As, as O'Brien flat out points out, this ship is generating so much power, way higher than it should, that we don't even know what's exactly getting through the cloak right now, right? You want to have something a little more stealth or reconnaissance or something else oriented to have that kind of a cloaking device. But I suppose having two new ships was just outside of the budget, so whatever. Moving on. <clears throat> Quark does his negotiations with the Karema uh, fairly well. I do, I do like that. I do like the little scene. There's not much to add to it, except for the fact that I love the continuity, which is another thing that they're going to get a little stronger on pretty much from this point onward. A lot of nods and references to previous events. They even flat out say the Tulaberries and, and the Karema were actually a race that was name-dropped back in the episodes where they were dealing with that. They even mention it's been eight months since those episodes. All nice touches. Um, and then Odo sees the Omarian Nebula. Question. 
this is kind of a spoiler for the next episode, but we find out later that Odo has a built-in instinct to seek out the Amarian Nebula when he encounters it. How? I know that sounds like such a strange thing, but hear me out for a second. Uh, we know that the Dominion... Uh, let me actually rewind that for a second. There's no genetic manipulation really possible with a changeling, right? Or is there? Because we do know that there is stuff that happens to a changeling. God, this is just weird. I'm just going to chalk it up to magic. Is everyone cool with that? My point is, for all the things I've been saying about how believable this episode is, the fact that they can magically build in this thing to a changeling, which has been established as already being basically magic and with regards to how it deals with everything we know about physics, is something that it's just kind of, eh? But as I just mentioned, the changelings themselves are basically magic, so whatever. So Odo freaks the hell out about this whole thing. Credit to René Bergenois. He accurately plays someone who is just on the edge of keeping himself under control. Like the compulsion that is pushing through him is something we really get in his performance. The fact that once he escapes with Kira, he goes for the nebula, not safety and home, says volumes about that. So then we get to the final moments. You know, he, Odo escapes. A um, couple notes about that, just really quick. First of all, and I just want to restress this point because this is an excellent uh, visual storytelling tool. The Defiant obliterates a Jem'Hadar ship in seconds. That is a, a visual storytelling point. That's showcasing to the audience exactly how strong this ship is compared to these ships, which we've only seen once before, but were pretty damn deadly and were challenging the Galaxy-class Odyssey rather significantly. And just, bam, and that's the end of it. That shows something. Something similar was done in the Season 3 episode of TNG, The Survivors, which I don't remember when is going live relative to this episode. Uh, looks like it's in a few weeks, if I'm looking at my notes correctly. I've already covered it. But in that episode, they did a similar visual shorthand thing, which helps to establish uh, exactly how the Enterprise can work, and a bunch of other stuff that I'll talk about in that episode when you get there. And then the Jem'Hadar, when they beam aboard, they basically do, like, the worst possible type of attack they could. They beam aboard, and they go, I'm going to hit you with the butt of my rifle! Now... We know why that is, but it's funny because at the time, it, it even looking at it, I'm like, wait, what? Why are they doing this? I also want to give special credit to the editing and the directing of the transition, basically from Kira's point of view of the attack of the Jem'Hadar to her waking up on a shuttle. It's a nice touch, and it's something that's very rarely done in Star Trek, and I just wanted to give credit for that as, to that where credit is due. It also leaves us completely in the dark about what's going on. And then they land on the Amarian rogue planet and find the other changelings. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you guys next week.